Tale of Two Cities. That was written by Charles Dickens. And it was a record or a novel about events and people in two different contrasting cities. That was a secular view. But Augustine in the 300s AD wrote a book called, still read widely, called The City of God. It too was a contrast between two cities. At that time, the heavenly cities, he said, and the earthly city, the city of God and the city of man. If you read the book of Revelation, um, it is also a tale of two cities about Babylon, the great, and the new Jerusalem, which will come down from heaven. 1 Peter is also a book that falls in that same line. It is a tale of two cities. Peter ends it by saying, the church who is also chosen in Babylon greets you. He meant Rome. And the people that he wrote to uh, were in Asia Minor, in Cappadocia, Bithynia, and a number of those regions there. They were all part of the Roman, or as Peter would say, Babylonian empire of his day. 1 Peter is a tale of two cities. How does the Christian live in God's world, God's city, God's kingdom, and also live in modern Babylon in America in the day in which we live? We saw last week that who you are shapes what you do. And that's absolutely true. And to live in Babylon but not be of Babylon means that to a great extent that as Christians we will have to be countercultural. We'll have to be those who are counted on be willing to make a difference by being different. That is our missional identity. Who we are. We are Christians. The only time outside of the book of Acts that the word Christian is used, by the way, only three times in the entire New Testament, Christian is not the normal term that we call ourselves in the New Testament. The only one outside of Acts is this reference in chapter 4 in Peter. Christians, little Christs. How do you live like Christ? That's our identity, to be like him. Well, that should change. Our missional identity should affect, impact, and change our missional activity. Now, last week we focused on our identity. This week I want to focus on that activity and explain it a little more thoroughly and explain it with an emphasis on the area which we don't commonly refer to during missions. Let me say it to you this way. According to Peter and his epistle that we're looking at, missional activity is twofold. It always involves both gospel words and gospel works. It's not either or, it's both and. And what Peter wants you and I to know this morning, and we really need to get this as a church is that living missionally like Jesus is not an event organized by the church, although we have them. It is a lifestyle. It is what we do day in and day out. As Peter says, we saw last week, it's when they see your good works. See, it's public. People observe it. But it's also when we are asked about a hope that we have. We don't share the American dream hope. We have a different one. And so here's what Peter says. Living missionally in Babylon means this. It means when people watch you and when they ask you things, they know this. You are different. Not odd different. God different. 
And Peter says that's what our job is. The difference, missional activity should both be audible and observable. It should be both formal and informal. That means, listen, every single Christian in this room, you were on mission this past week. You had missional activity as part of your life. The question is not whether you did or not. It's whether your missional activity was helpful to the cause of the gospel or hurtful. See, Peter's readers lived in a part of the Babylonian or Roman Empire that there was the beginnings of localized persecution. And that persecution was mostly verbal at first, social ostracization, but then it became physical, and then it became violent. And they were being oppressed both verbally and violently at times. And the question Peter answers to all of his readers that were undergoing those circumstances in their Babylon was this, how would they as Christians, how should they respond Would they respond like Christ or would they respond like culture? Would they return evil with evil? Would they return evil with good? And what should mark Christians, whether it's the first or the 21st century, is that no matter what our circumstances is, no matter what's going on in our culture, politically, socially, economically, on social media, here's what should mark us, that we are the people who are good. Not just social good, God good, gospel good. Peter wants to show us as a church this morning the power of doing good, a lifestyle. I call it God good and Babylonian bad. That's what we're facing. We live in a culture that is antithetical to almost everything we believe and stand for. How do you do it? How do you stand up and be a witness? You do it with your lips, yes, but not before you do it with your life. We must be a people. Christians must be known for doing good when surrounded by and living in the midst of bad. And I want to look at two things to show you the power of doing good this morning. I want to look at it at a macro level. In the text of 1 Peter, and I want to look at it at a micro level, right down home where you and I live. So let's do both of them together. And remember, this is a lifestyle. So the macro level, let me start with this. The little phrase, please study this further. We're going to do it in our small groups in a little bit. The little phrase, doing good, is prevalent and dominant in 1 Peter. In fact, it is mentioned nine different times. Now, the word good itself is mentioned even more than that. But the little phrase, the main one, doing good, is used in 2.11, 14, 15, 20, chapter 3, 6, 11, 13, 17, chapter 4 and verse 19. Do you get what I'm saying? The book, in the very middle of the section, the very guts, the climax of what Peter is saying is this. Here's how we respond to a bad Babylonian culture. We do good. We do good. It is powerful. Now, here's the problem, right? It doesn't seem to be powerful. We think that if we could get a Christian in the Oval Office, if we could have people elected to be senators or this or that or local, if we could just get people of power, and here's what Peter says. Not because Christians can't be in politics. Here's how he says it. If churches, if Christian people, average people, not in great high positions of authority, but the average person was doing good, counter-cultural Christian good, You wouldn't be able to believe the power that it could have in your lives, in your communities, 
and in your nation. Now, we downplay doing good, and that's why we hardly seldom talk about that part of being the gospel. Here's why. Because in our lives, we have limited it and downgraded it to be much more than, not much more than this, be nice. See, we see, Peter says doing good, and you know what we think? Well, be nice to everybody. Isn't that great? So please don't go home today and from the message and tell your friends, hey, you know, Pastor Walker said to live missionally. Here's what I got to do. I got to be nice. And therefore, I'm going to make some chocolate chip cookies, and I'm going to take them over to my neighbor's And that's what he was talking about. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you making me some chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) And then, then be good to your neighbor. Can I tell you, they are not the same. They are not the same. What does it mean then, Pastor Walker? What does it mean for God's people to do good? In the Roman world, doing good was mainly thought of and defined by only a select group of people who had position and wealth. And if you had position and wealth, you were the upper echelon of society, you would be the patron of everybody who had little or nothing, and it was your job to do good. Do good to your community by building things and doing things that no one else could to make your city better. See, that's not what Peter's talking about. That was the world's definition of doing good, like chocolate chip cookies. But it wasn't Peter's. You know what his definition was? Way more than that. It was public for sure because last week in 2.12, it said doing good among the Gentiles. So we're supposed to be around the, the Babylonians. We're supposed to be around unsaved people doing good. And it is public, but it's way more than that. It is way more countercultural than any of that. Let me show you. Can I? Pen and paper in hand perhaps. Let me show you what it means. Every one of these texts, and I'm just going to survey them, all of them have doing good in them, right? Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Christians respond as citizens in their Babylon, and we are, and they respond to unsaved government leaders. And it says in 2, 14 and 15 that here's how we respond, by doing good. Chapter 2, verse 20, Christians respond as slaves. They had slaves back then who had masters, and most of the masters were unsaved, and they didn't always treat them justly or fairly by any stretch of the imagination. How would you respond to that back in the first century? Here's how Christians would do it, by doing good. Chapter 3 and verse 6, let's get it closer to home, literally home. Wives who have unsaved husbands, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. How would they respond? Here's how they respond to their unsaved husbands that aren't on the same page with them spiritually at all. Here's how they respond, by doing good. Chapter 3, verse 13, our passage, coupled with chapter 4 and verse 19, how do you respond when you are suffering, when you stand up for Jesus and you are ridiculed, you are persecuted, and worse. How do you respond to it? Here's how we respond to unsaved persecution. We do good in the face of evil. Do you see what he's saying now? See, doing good for Peter, our missional activity, for, it's for every Christian, not just the people who have wealth and position, not just the pastors who are the paid professionals. It's men and women in the text. Did you see that? It's rich people and poor people. It's free people, slave people. It's what you do privately in your house and what you do publicly out in the square. 
Let me modernize it. It's what you do at your job when your unsaved boss gets on your last nerve. When you don't get the promotion because the guy who plays office politics better than you does, and again you're passed over, how do you respond? See, we can do it on a local level, a personal level, and we can do it on a national level. How do you respond when the person who gets in office isn't the one you voted for or the one that you would like and has none of your standards or values or even morals? How do you respond? Like my sister who was asked to display an LGBTQ rainbow on her door and refused to do it nor give to the charity that they were asking her to even after she was coerced to do it. How would you respond to that? How about when your unsaved spouse tells you, hey, I don't like how religious you are, and I really would appreciate it if you didn't go to church so much. How do you respond to that? How about when you're younger even, and your friends all talk about this and what they did on the weekend and all the things that they're involved in, and see, and you are responding how? Because if you respond and you tell them what you really think and what you're really about and who you really are, see, they're going to ditch you, and you're not going to be friends anymore, and you won't be popular, and they won't accept you anymore. Because you don't smoke marijuana, and you don't drink, and you don't... The list goes on. You say, okay, Pastor Walker, okay, I get it. You want me to make cookies for everyone? (laughs) Everywhere. No. Well, yes, but no. That's not what Peter means by being good. Can I tell you this? It's even more radical than what I've said. To understand what Peter means... To be a witness by doing good in every area of your life, you have to understand his signature verb. See, in every single one of those texts that I just read you, those four vignettes of different phases and places in your life that you might be, he uses the same verb to describe doing good every single time. You know what it is? Be subject It is a Greek verb that means to power under. It's a word that means that you put yourself under. And they're doing it in the midst of harassment. See, here's what Peter would say. Submission is part of the mission. See what I'm saying? How you respond when you don't have the power, when you respond in culture or in your house or in your neighborhood or with your boss, when you don't have the power, when you can't call the shots, when someone's over you and they're ruthless. See how you respond, that is your witness, he says. So we do good. It's our missional way of reaching people. And for Peter... That means when it comes to political realms, when it comes to our company and the things that we have at our job, it means when we're treated unjust and unkind by people, it's even about your home and your relationship with your spouse. See, it's not easy. It's not easy in our day because you know what? It wasn't easy in theirs either. Let me tell you about marriages. And this is a man called Plutarch, was very famous in the first century as this book was written. And he wrote an article and distributed it, and it was called Advice to Brides and Grooms. Listen to this. A wife ought to make, not make, sorry, a wife ought to not make friends of her own. That would go over well, right? But to enjoy her husband's in common with him. See, his gods are to be the first and most important above all of your choices and friends, he writes. Therefore, it's becoming for a wife 
to worship and know only the gods that her husband believes in. You see how hard it when Peter writes this, you see what he's saying to them? See, you're, an, you're a saved wife, you love Jesus, you're following him, you're dedicated to him, and your husband knows nothing. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, it says he is disobedient to the word. It's not that he just doesn't tolerate it, he doesn't like it. He is opposed to it, and he lets you know it in no uncertain terms. Right? You've been there, some of you still are. He says, and this is what you do 24-7, 365. So what are you going to do? Hear me, D-A-I-L-Y. What are you going to do? Here's what he says. Let God give you the power to submit. And when your husband is unlovely, do good. Do good. And he says, you may win him by your good conduct. Listen to this. Without a word. See, there are sometimes. When you can't say things for Jesus, you know that at your job may be true. There are some times when you really shouldn't say anything, but there is no time where you should not live the gospel. Not a single place, not a single moment. Even in your worst times, even when the relationships are hard and you don't think you can do it another day, see, you can because sometimes it's not the words we speak but the behavior that God seems to use to be more effective. That's not diminishing the words at all because we know that it's the words that God has that changes lives. He says that in verse 15, that we should have an apologetic. We should be ready to defend with our words. But listen, not unless our lives back it up. I asked myself the question, and I read all these four vignettes, and submitting as a way of doing mission. How does somebody do that? What's the basis? How would I know if I am or not doing it? The answer, simply, Jesus. Did you know smack dab in the middle of this context of all four of these examples that Peter gives about how to live this way, there's a little paragraph tucked right in the middle on purpose verses 21 through 25 of chapter 2. And you know what it's all about? Jesus. And here's what it says. Christ also suffered. And here's what he's saying. You're suffering. You're really going through it. But don't think, but think this. Jesus suffered. He suffered before you. He suffered longer than you. He suffered more than you. Why does that matter? He's not talking to believers about Jesus' suffering because they get saved by it, although that's true. He's saying this. You know what his sufferings are? They're an example to you. Here's why. Because here's how I know I'm responding the right way. In my marriage, at my job, in my career, or wherever it might be, here's how I know. Am I doing it like Jesus did? That's the test. Because here's what Peter says. The goal is this. You should be following in his steps. See, when Jesus suffered, can I tell you this? He submitted He spent hours in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees, sweating drops of blood to do what? To tell the Father, not my will, but yours be done. See, all that he did was a matter of him submitting himself. See, submission was connected to the mission. Do you see it? In Jesus even. Even though he was the God-man in the Garden, he's fighting and struggling. Why? Because it's not easy. 
Why? Because he has to submit. He knows what the Father's will is. In our text, it says, if it is the will of God that you suffer like this. Jesus said it is, and so I'm going to struggle. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to pour my heart out to God. Because why? Submission is connected to the mission. But not just submitting to God. Watch. When it was time for him to be crucified, you know what the Bible says? Jesus turned to the disciples who were sleeping and said, get up. Let's go. Let's go meet our betrayer. He volunteered. He went and found them. Who does that? Jesus. You know why? Because he knows that's part of a mission. And he went to find the people who would arrest him and spit on him and slap him and beat him and mock him and flog him and crucify him. You know why? Because when he was being tried and people were saying all kinds of things about him, do you know what he did? He said nothing. Not a word. But he said volumes, didn't he? How? By the way he responded. By the way that he lived his life. What he did and did not do. Is that you? Is that me? See, you know how you live on mission in Babylon? You know how you make a Christ-shaped difference? By self-sacrificial submission. Loving people when you don't know if they will love you back. That's what it means to follow Jesus' steps. Now see, that's the totality, the macro part of living missional as a lifestyle in Babylon. That's the big whole piece. Now listen, with that in mind, the micro, micro piece is verse 13. In the text, can you look at it with me quickly? Doing good right where we live. This little paragraph, 13 through 17, is bracketed by both good and evil. Look what the verse says. I'll read it for you originally. Those, now there, who is there that will harm you, or it's the word do evil to you, if you are zealous for what is good? And then it ends up saying, it's better to suffer if it's God's will for doing good than doing evil. See, the whole little phrase is bracketed because in, in a microscopic way, in a small way, this is what his whole text has been about. Doing good when you could choose to do evil, when you could get back at people, when you could say things that make them look bad, when you could take revenge instead of doing all of that. You see, submission is part of the mission, and you do something differently. An author I read this week said this, the church engages Babylon both with the good news and as the good news. Do you have both? Do you have both in your life? Cyprian in 250 AD said, Holy brethren, we don't only speak great things, we live them. Are you living them? See, the gospel is a two-edged sword. One sharp side is gospel words. The other sharp side is gospel works. Our apologetics will fail if we do one or the other. We have to put them together We have to put mission and submission. We have to put works and words together. It can't be one or the other. Paul says in Romans 12, 21, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. That's our missional way. And so he says, listen, you don't have to worry about people. You don't have to fear people who persecute you. You don't have to fear any of that, he says in the next verse, 
in our passage. He says, if you are zealous for what is good. See, zealous for something's good is a lifestyle. Not just occasionally when the church says, oh, we've got something missional going. No, it's you. It's your lifestyle. It's the kind of person that you are. It's someone who's intense and passionate and committed to gospel good all the time. Peter, I'm sorry, Paul says in Titus 2.14, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Peter said that in 2.12. Here's what marks God's people, who we are. They are zealous. Hear that? Zealous for good works. You know what zealous is. I know you do because you watch TV. You've seen the people at the football games, right? It's 12 degrees. They have no shirt on. They painted their body the color of their team with letters, each one spelling a word. You've seen them. They're crazy. I mean, zealous. They spent a whole whole lot of money to do this. Tickets, they've tailgated. They're there way before it starts. They're way there after the starts. They're crazy. They're standing up. They're zealous for football. Oh, I've seen it too. Go to the gym. Have you seen it? Go to the gym. People go to the gym, even on vacation, if they belong to a certain gym, Planet Fitness, they'll go to it and go to the one in that city while they're there because they're not going to miss a day. Why? Look at this. It doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> they're going to the gym and watch out now. They weigh their food on a scale. Protein bars and shakes. Don't offer me that sugar stuff from hell. They're serious about it. They pay for nutritionists to plan their meals. You've seen it, right? You know what zeal is. Look at people with their career. They get up early. They stay up late. They're not paid hourly but salary, but they do it anyways. They commute hours upon hours to work, back home to work. Less hours with their families, even sometimes to the detriment of their marriage or their children's upbringing, but they, and they do it every day. They go, on vaca- they go on trips, business trips, that they're even away longer from their family. Why? Because they have zeal for it. Education, you've seen it, right? Their undergraduate degree, and then they get a master's degree, and if that wasn't enough, they get a doctorate degree. Tens of thousands of dollars later, they're still doing it, and it's big money, it's a big amount of time, years and years, Things get put off. Everything takes a second seat to studying. Why? Because they're zealous for it. See, here's what Paul, if you're zealous for good works, zealous, not that you do them occasionally. This isn't some charity that the world puts on that we occasionally write a check and say, oh yeah, that's what I did. I was zealous today. See, the question is, are you the kind of person who's zealous for God and for the gospel and for good works as you are in the other areas of life, where I'm really zealous for this, but God, hey, hey, here you go. Here's 20 bucks. Is that how it works? Are you zealous reading your Bible, coming to church, being at the services, serving, witnessing, tithing, meeting the needs of others? Is there any type of self-sacrificial love there? That's what zealousness is. In the text, did you see what he says? Everything in his mind. Listen, everything in this text, this little paragraph, He says, do what is good, 313. Have a good conscience, 316. It's by your good behavior, verse 16. For doing good, verse 17. Do you see it? He can't stop saying it. He says this, good news, yes. Good deeds, yes. 
Good conscience, good stewards, good conduct. He can't stop saying good. Why? Because this is what we should be known for in our community. Listen, if they close Faith Baptist Church down next week, would anybody miss us? Would they care? Oh, that church used to do this good, and they loved me. Not just event that they threw for fun. They used to do stuff for us. They used to care. They had the Martin Luther King thing here, and they were out in the community. That, I remember that church came by, and the people from that small group, man, they did their, my lawn, and they helped me with this, and I couldn't get out of bed, and they were there with meals. And the chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> See, are we good? Can I tell you this? That's the real good life. Don't let America fool you. That's the good life. How does it happen, Pastor Walker? Let me close with this. There's only one command in the paragraph we're looking at. Did you know only one? You know what it is? Honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's what it is. How do you do that? How do you live a lifestyle like that? How do you not fear those things? How do you not feel the people, the circumstances? You don't have to worry about the repercussions. How do you live like that? How do you live that at work and at home? See, it's all the time. How do I do that? You can't unless Christ is the Lord in your heart. See, the greatest apologetic starts from the inside out, not the other way around. The fear of those, don't fear it, he says. That's literally in the Greek. Don't fear their fear. Don't be troubled by it. Why? Because Jesus is the center of your life. So how is it that we can be ready to answer, to give a defense, to have an apology? How are we ready to use the words? Because we have the word in here, Jesus. That's how you have the boldness to say what you should say. That's how you have the boldness to do what you should do. That's how you have the sensitivity to see opportunities and people as opportunities to do good. That's how you live out a different hope. That's how you handle slander and suffering. You know how? Because you see it as a missional opportunity. That's how you do it. Can I tell you this morning? Someone's eternal life may be at stake because of your good life if you're living it. You'll never really know, maybe this side of glory, how you're impacting people and the mission of God with the gospel for eternity unless you live it every day and in every way. That's who we are. And by God's grace, may it shape what we do. Let's close in prayer. Father, may the people at Faith Baptist Church know what the good life really is. Not beholden to the self-centered, pleasure-seeking, therapeutic age in which we live. But let submission be connected to our mission Let the good news and our good works be bound together. And may people ask us about our faith because they've seen it first. May that mark us as Christians, little Christs at Faith Baptist Church. That's what mission means. God, may we hear stories, 
stories of your great glory and the way that you've given us the power to do what we've been asked to do from 1 Peter. May we hear stories of how you've used it to impact people's lives. Help us to see and live the power of doing good that you might get the glory and our world might get the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.